Let me ask you a question. Have you ever met that family who seems to have it all together? You ever seen those people? They seem like their life is the perfect life. Can I tell you something about those people? It's not. They don't really have it all together. Have you ever seen that couple that when you look at their life, and maybe it's through the lens of social media, which you know is not the real picture anyway most of the time, but when you look at their life, it seems like everything in their life is perfectly ordered? It's not. Here's the truth. Every family has its stuff. Every family struggles. Every family endures hardship. Every family has blind spots. Every family has difficulty. And the reason that's true is because every family is made up of people, right? And people are the problem. We're all broken. And so when you put broken people together in a family, those broken people bring into that family all of our brokenness. And one of the beauties of a godly Christian marriage is that we help each other heal in the areas that we're broken and we disciple one another. But the fact is, because we're broken people, every family experiences some measure of brokenness. Let me just say to all of the men who are here today, every man in the room who's married, you could be a better husband than you are. Ladies, be careful. You could be a better husband than you are being. And every man who is a father could be a better dad. It's true. We all could be. The same is true for for women. Every woman who's gathered for church today, all all of the women who are married, you could be a better wife than you're being. And all of the women who are mothers could be a better mom than you are. The fact is none of us are everything that we ought to be. None of us are perfect. And one of the things that we've learned about Abraham in this series over the last few weeks is that Abraham was not perfect. You've been really honest about his faults and his failures. And I love the fact that God's word just you know, tells the story of the people in his, in his uh, word with all of the bumps and the, and the pimples and everything. It doesn't wash, uh, whitewash all of that. We've learned that Abraham was not a perfect husband. He ultimately wasn't a perfect father. But do you know what Abraham was? He was faithful. Lot, on the other hand, was far from perfect, and he was anything but faithful. And so here's what you and I have to decide this morning. Which one of those do we want to be? Guys, who do you want to be? Do you want to be like Lot, unfaithful? Or do you want to be like Abraham and be faithful? Ladies, which of these two men do you want to emulate? Faithful Abraham or unfaithful Lot? Here's what I would suggest to you. We should stop trying for perfection and we should seek faithfulness. In fact, I hope you'll write that down somewhere. The goal is not perfection. You're never going to be perfect in this life. Neither will I, none of us will. So we should stop trying for perfection and we should simply, in the help of God and by the grace of God, we should try to be faithful. Now when you think about faithful Abraham and uh, unfaithful Lot, 
It's amazing the contrast that the book of Genesis paints for us between these two men, even just in our text today specifically. Look at, at Genesis 19, beginning in verse 24. Let me just read a few verses for you and notice the difference in these verses between Abraham and Lot. Verse 24 says, Then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all of the plain, that's the Jordan Valley, and all of the inhabitants of those cities and everything which grew upon the ground. Now, by the way, this verse, verse 25, is a, is a descriptive verse of the severity of God's judgment, not just upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but upon all the cities in that Jordan Valley. Those cities were overthrown. The verse says all the inhabitants of those cities were uh, uh, judged in that judgment as well, even everything which grew upon the ground. Verse 26, but Lot's wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. Look at verse 27. And Abraham, early in the morning, got himself to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he beheld, or he watched, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot, or, or called Lot, or, or drew Lot out of the midst of that overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Now, look at the difference. You have Abraham standing on the slopes of the Judean hills, standing in a place where he would go to stand before the Lord. Obviously, this is a place where he has built an altar, where he goes to worship and to pray. He's standing in that place. From that vantage point, he can see into the Jordan Valley, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, the other series, cities. He can see the judgment, the fire and brimstone falling, and the smoke of those cities' destruction rising. And he's standing there before the Lord, faithful righteous Abraham standing there interceding, praying, you know he is, for Lot and his family and certainly for the people of those cities. There's one man. Contrast that with Lot. Lot in verse number 29 is being dragged literally to safety out of the cities that are the city that is so wicked that God is destroying it, and Lot is being pulled out, literally saved by the skin of his teeth. So, again, I'll ask you the question who do you want to be? Do you want to be the guy standing before the Lord, faithful and righteous, not perfect, but, but faithful and righteous? Or do you want to be the guy or the gal so immersed? in the world, that God's got to rescue you by the skin of your teeth. Which of those two people do you want to be? Well, this is what we're going to talk about today, and God is going to, I'm confident, help each of us surrender to him in fresh new ways. Let me set the scene for you just so that you'll understand all that's happening in Genesis chapter 19. You will recall, I hope, from last Sunday that in Genesis 18, we have been given this determination that God is going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let me take you to chapter 18. Turn back one page, verse number 20. 
where the, where the Bible tells us that the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, God's determination, God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah is that they are sinning in a way that he describes as a very severe, a very grievous sin. Turn back one or two more pages to chapter 13. You'll remember this from really maybe the very first or second week of this series. We looked in chapter 13 where verse 13 says, God's estimation of the men of Sodom, but the men of Sodom were wicked and sinners before the Lord exceedingly. Two different passages say that God has determined that the men of Sodom are wicked, exceedingly sinful, grievously sinful people. So what was the great sin of Sodom? What was the sin that caused God to look and say, I'm going to go there and judge? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I know. I mean, we know what the sin of Sodom was. We all know what the sin of Sodom was, right? I mean, even the name of the city, Sodom, has come to be associated with the lifestyle of the men of that city. So we would say, well, I, I, know what the, I know what the sin of Sodom is. But what you might not understand is that the great sin of Sodom was not the beginning of their sin or the totality of it. In actuality, it was the end of their sin. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold my finger in Genesis and turn over to Ezekiel. I'd love it if you'd go with me. Go to Ezekiel chapter number 16, please, where Ezekiel is going to give us a commentary on the sins of Sodom. And you might be surprised by what you're going to find. Ezekiel chapter 16, look at verse number 49. Ezekiel says, Behold, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. And then he begins to list five different sins of Sodom. Number one, pride. The first sin of Sodom, of the people of Sodom that God delineates, is the sin of pride. It is this sense of indestructibility, that we can do anything, that we are self-made people, that we have built this beautiful city, and, and it was an arrogance, a pride that they had. It was rather like, do you remember, um, do you remember in, uh, in the book of Daniel when King Nebuchadnezzar uh, stands and says, look at this great kingdom which I have built, this great empire which I have built by my strength. It was that kind of pride. He goes on to say their second sin, verse number 49, was an idleness in their affluence. Look at verse number 49. Their sins were pride, fullness of bread or affluence, but with an abundance of idleness. Now, it's not a sin to be affluent, but their affluence had, had um, caused them to become very idle and very self-centered. Um, it's, it's the same idea that you find in Luke 12, where Jesus tells the, the parable about the farmer who has great uh, harvest, great uh, crop uh, harvests. He fills his barns. He doesn't have enough room, so he tears them down, builds bigger barns. And then he says, you know what? I've got all I need for many years. I've been very successful. 
I'll just rest in this. It was the same sin of Sodom. They had idleness in their affluence. They were filled with pride. He goes on to say that they had no compassion, verse number 49. They did not strengthen the hand of the needy or the poor. They were only interested in themselves. And in that pride, in that self-centeredness, in that idleness, in their affluence, they became very arrogant. Look at verse 50. And they were haughty. Now, this word means a haughtiness toward God. In the first place, they were proud of themselves. In the second place, they were arrogant toward God. We don't need you. We can do what we want to do. We can be what we want to be. It's similar to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where in that chapter, in the church of Corinth, there is a sin happening in that church. And Paul says, you're not even broken over the sin. You're puffed up about it. You're proud of your sin. They were prideful. They were affluent and idle. They were self-centered. They were not compassionate and they were haughty toward God. All of which led them to the last thing that's talked about in verse 50 where he says, and they committed an abomination before me. And because they were prideful and arrogant and idle in their affluence, they didn't care about anybody but themselves, they didn't care for the poor and needy, they were haughty toward me, all of that led them to this abomination and I just destroyed them. Verse number 50, I took them away as I saw fit. That's the sin of Sodom. And you might say, well, if verse number 50 of Ezekiel 49 tells us that they committed an abomination... What is that abomination? What was the abomination of the Sodomites, the men of Sodom? It's the same abomination that Leviticus chapter number 18 and verse 22 tells us about when it says, God speaking, you shall not lie with a man or a male as with a woman. Now, wait a minute. Isn't love love? Isn't every relationship as valid as the next? Isn't a homosexual union two men together, two women together? Isn't love, love? Here's what God says. If y'all are listening, shout amen. God says it is an abomination. You say, well, pastor, that's not what they tell me at school. I'm not telling you what your teacher tells you. Well, that's, that's not what the people in my community think or the people that I work with. I'm not telling you what they say. That's not what my parents, I'm not even telling you what your parents believe. I'm telling you what God says. And God says that it is an abomination. But, but hear me, we always tend to land on the homosexuality sin, but understand that that perversion came as a result of all the other sins which led them down this path which always ultimately ends in perversion. Go back to Genesis chapter 19. Look at verses number 4 and 5. Here you have this abomination that God talks about. Genesis 19 verse 4. But before they lay down, that is before the angels who had come into Sodom's, or into Lot's house in Sodom, before they laid down, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house all around, banging on the doors, yelling. It came from everywhere. Verse 5, they called unto Lot and said to him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now, if you understand the biblical language of the King James translation, you know that when it says that we may know them, 
It means that we may have sexual relations with them. This is the abomination of of Sodom. It is that the men of Sodom were given over to pervasive homosexuality so much so that they wanted to have homosexual sex with these two men who were actually angels, but they didn't know that. They were two men who had come into town. Now remember, let me say it again. This is not the beginning of their sin. It is the end of their sin. Their pride, which led them to idleness in their affluence, which caused them to be self-centered, which caused them to not care for anybody else, which caused them to say to God, we can do what we want to do. It ultimately led them to say, we will explore our most perverse desires. Loved ones, that is the spiraling staircase of a life that walks away from God and embraces sin. It will always take us to our lowest place of depravity. This is what Romans chapter number one teaches us. Now, I would just say this plainly, that this text in Genesis 19, this text in Ezekiel chapter number 16, may as well be describing America in the last, what, just last generation or so, last 70 years. Some of you will be familiar with a book by the name, uh, by the title of Family and Civilization. It was written by Carl Zimmerman. It was written in 1947. Family and Civilization. Here's what Zimmerman did. He He looked through history. He studied civilizations over the course of history in order to create or to show a correlation between the health of the nuclear family and the health of the the civilization. That's why he called it family and civilization. And here's what he learned throughout history. When the nuclear family is healthy, the civilization is healthy. But when the nuclear family begins to decline, the civilization will decline and ultimately collapse every single time. And in his book, Zimmerman said that every civilization in history that is unraveled shares five common characteristics. And he listed them. The first one is a breakdown of the nuclear family, which is marked by skyrocketing Divorce. Now, we all know life is messy and we, we make mistakes and sometimes sin happens in a marriage and, and so marriages fail. We know that. He's not talking about when some marriages fail. He says when divorce skyrockets and the rate of divorce begins to match or surpass the rate of surviving or healthy marriages, then a culture is getting in trouble. He says it begins with a breakdown of the basic building block of a culture, which is a marriage between one man and one woman. The second characteristic that he said he saw in declining civilizations is that once marriage begins to break down, then there is a confusing of the complementary roles of men and women. So that he said once the family, the marriage begins to break down, then men begin to live like women and women begin to live like men and we don't understand our role in family We don't understand our role in culture. And we're seeing a day in our day where not only, both campuses, if y'all are listening, shout amen. Amen. Don't miss this. Not only in America in these days have we been confused about the roles of the genders, we have decided gender doesn't even exist anymore. 
And so there is no such thing as a male gender or a female. You self-determine what your gender is. Zimmerman said when this begins to happen, a civilization is on the decline. Number three, he said there will be a rise in disrespect and delinquency and promiscuity among young people. He said that promiscuity will then be prevalent among adults as well so that adultery will become commonplace. There will be no sexual integrity. There will, be, there will simply be widespread adultery that will be uh, not only affirmed but celebrated. And then he said this, the final characteristic of every civilization that has declined throughout history is that when it's on its decline, it will ultimately embrace homosexuality as a norm and affirm homosexual relationships, homosexual marriage, uh, homosexuality, and will celebrate it. Now, these things were happening in Sodom, and they are happening in America. Uh, Ruth Graham, who's the late wife of Billy Graham, well, the late wife of the late Billy Graham, But Ruth Graham has famously said, if God doesn't judge America, he will have to raise up Sodom and Gomorrah and apologize to them. Now, it's not good theology, to be honest with you, because God doesn't have to do anything. But I understand the sentiment. She said, if God doesn't judge America, he will have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, having said all of that, I just need to tell you that uh, that is not even my topic, my subject for today. (laughs) I mean, really, I I didn't come to talk about homosexuality. But the truth is, you can't read Genesis 19 and treat it with any integrity without addressing what is the elephant in the room in Genesis 19. But that's not really where I want us to hang out. What I want to do today is I want to talk to those of you who are married husbands or wives. I want to speak to those of you who are parents, those of us who are leading and and guiding in in family relationships, all of us who are in families. I want to talk to you about being faithful so that you can be a blessing to your family and, and be like faithful Abraham and not like unfaithful Lot. And we're going to learn these lessons today primarily by looking at the negative example of Lot. So follow along. Here's my text actually beginning in verse number 12 I just want to read a few verses down to verse number 17. Genesis 19, verse 12. The Bible says, And the men, these are the two angels who have come to Lot. The men said unto Lot, Do you have any family here besides these? Sons-in-law, sons, your daughters, whoever you have in the city, get them out of here. Bring them out of this place. For we will destroy this city because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, which had married his daughters, and he said to them, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy the city. But he seemed as one that mocked, that joked to his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, then the angels hastened, hurried, Lod, and they said, Arise, get your wife, take your two daughters which are here, lest you be consumed in the iniquity of this city. Get out of here, verse 16. And while he lingered, he hesitated. While he lingered, the angels, the men, laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and the hand of his two daughters. 
the Lord being merciful unto him. And they brought him forth and set him outside the city. And it came to pass when they brought them forth abroad, they said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, neither stay in the valley. Escape to the mountain, lest you would be consumed. Now, listen, we have to note, don't we, that of all of the people in Sodom, every one of the inhabitants of Sodom, and not only Sodom, all of the inhabitants of Gomorrah and all of the inhabitants of all of the cities in the Jordan Valley, of all of those people, four were rescued from this judgment. Lot, his wife, who ultimately dies anyway, we'll talk about that in a minute, and his two daughters, only four were rescued. And you have to go, why? Why these four? Why did God get them out and no others? I think the text tells us why they were saved, even if barely, and they were barely saved by the skin of their teeth, But why did God save them? Several reasons. Number one, write it down. They were saved because of Abraham's prayers for Lot. The text tells us this unequivocally. We read it a moment ago in verse number 29. It came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that he remembered Abraham and he got Lot. He sent or he brought Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot dwelt. Why did God take Lot and his family out of the city? At least in part... Because Abraham prayed for Lot. God remembered those prayers from chapter 18. Do you remember? God, if there's 50, 45, 40, 30, 10, 20, 10, he's praying for Lot and God heard his prayer. And listen, some of us today are praying for people that we love and they're living in Sodom, man. They're living in this world and we long for them to come to the Lord or to come back to the Lord. We beg God to work in their lives. And here's my encouragement to you. Keep on praying because your prayers make a difference. Don't give up. Lot was rescued from this judgment because Abraham prayed. Number two, Lot was rescued from this judgment, simply put, because God is merciful. You should be glad God is merciful. Look at chapter 19 and verse number 16. It says, while he hesitated, the angels laid hold upon him and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hands of his two daughters because the Lord was being merciful. If you're glad God is merciful, shout amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. I'm glad God is merciful. I'm glad God is so merciful that sometimes his mercy overwhelms and overwrites my own rebellion and my own sin struggles. God was merciful to him, and so he took him out. Third reason he took him out is because Lot had a righteous soul. That's why. Even though he was living in Sodom, the New Testament tells us that Lot was a righteous man. Not righteous in his behavior, apparently, but righteous in his soul. Let me read it to you. Second Peter, you can turn if you'd like to. Second Peter chapter two, listen to verse number six. And God, turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them with an overthrow, making them an example unto those that should after live ungodly. But he delivered righteous Lot, or just Lot, which means righteous. He delivered righteous Lot, who was vexed, with the filthy lifestyle of the wicked. Verse 8 says, For that righteous man 
dwelling among them, seeing and hearing, vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. Three times, are you listening? Three times in two verses, Peter says, Lot was righteous. He had been raised at the feet of Abraham. Abraham was his uncle, but he was like a father figure to him. He had influenced him. When Abraham heard the call of God to leave the Ur and go to Haran and ultimately into Canaan, and he believed God, he walked by faith, and he built altars, and he stood before the Lord, and he praised God, Lot would have been with him all of those times. Lot was drawn to believe in the God of heaven by the faith of Abraham. He had believed and trusted in the Lord. And Peter says he had a righteous soul. So you got to ask the question, what happened? How did, how did the, the near son of the father of faith end up in the most wicked city in the world that God was going to rain fire and brimstone down on. How do you go from being Lot, the man with a righteous soul, with faithful Abraham, to being Lot, the unfaithful man whose soul is vexed in wicked Sodom? By the way, have you ever asked yourself that question about somebody that you know and love? Have you ever watched somebody's life and gone, how do you get there? How, how do you do that? How do you make that decision? How do you think that way? How do, you, how do you go from that to that? Here's a tougher question. Have you ever asked yourself that question about yourself? <laughs> Have you ever looked at your own mistakes and gone, how in the world did I ever do that? How did I get to this place? Well, it's a good question. And I want us to learn from Lot back in Genesis. I want us to learn how it is that Lot ended up in Sodom. So I want you to write this down in your notes somewhere. Let's begin by thinking together about the slow fade of a backsliding saint. You know, I, um, I asked the question a minute ago, how does the near son of Abraham walking in faith with faithful Abraham end up living in the middle of the city of whom God had said it is a grievously wicked and exceedingly sinful place. Well, I can tell you how it didn't happen. It didn't happen overnight. It was a slow fade to get to where he went to. And this is how Satan does it. If God is going, or I'm sorry, if Satan is going to, to derail your faith, to move you to a place where you are living in a backslidden condition, living in Sodom as opposed to walking with Abraham, walking unfaithfully instead of faithfully. If he's going to do it, he's not going to begin with the worst thing you can imagine. He's going to begin and slowly fade you to that place. Can I, do you mind if I take a minute and show you the slow fade of Lot? Turn to chapter 13. Let me show you chapter 13, verse 10. Here's where it began for Lot. Chapter 13, verse 10 says, And Lot lifted up his eyes and beheld, he saw all the plain of the Jordan Valley, that it was well watered everywhere. How did he end up in Sodom? It began with his eyes. 
It began with him, rather than having his eyes focused on the Lord and what God wanted for him, where God wanted him to live, he looked at the world to see where he thought he would find the most pleasures, and he decided it would be in the cities of the Jordan Valley because, after all, they were the best cities in the most beautiful valley around. And so his eyes began to look. Look at chapter 13, verse 12. Because his eyes looked and he longed for it, it says in verse number 12 that he went there and uh, Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan, but Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and he pitched his tent towards Sodom. It means that he lived, that literally his camp went to the very edge, the border of Sodom. He was looking into Sodom. It began with his eyes and his longing and then he got, he wasn't in Sodom. He wasn't living in that lifestyle. He wasn't even in the city. He's just as close as he can get. Kind of where some of you are living today. I love you, but it's the truth. You live in as close to the world as you can get. He wasn't in it, but he was close. Go to chapter 14, verse 12. Chapter 14, verse 12 tells us these words, and they took Lot, Abram's brother, who dwelt in Sodom. What began with the eyes looking, what progressed to living close to, ultimately drew him and his family in so that by the time you get to chapter 14, verse 12, he's living in the city of Sodom. Look at chapter 19, verse 1, when the two angels arrive in Sodom. It says, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot sat in the gate of the city. Now he's not just looking, now he's not just living close to, now he's not just living in, now he is fully immersed in and is even an elder in the city, sitting in the gate and judging among the people of Sodom. Hear me, loved ones, this is the strategy of Satan. And some of you here today are already looking Somewhere you shouldn't be looking. Or maybe you've gone beyond looking and you've edged closer and closer. Or maybe you're living in that place you shouldn't be living, doing those things you shouldn't be doing. Or maybe you have fully immersed your life and your family in this world, though you have been made righteous by the death and resurrection of Christ. This is the slow fade. It's the way Satan does it. And if you'll be honest, some of you would have to say today, this is where I'm at in this process. I am on my way or I am fully immersed in the unfaithfulness of Lot. Beware. Scripture says, book of Proverbs says, guard your heart above all else. Guard your heart. For out of your heart flows all the issues of life. Your life is going to end up where your heart goes. And so beware of that slow fade. The second thing I want you to see in Lot's life is the sad legacy of a backslidden parent, specifically speaking to those of us that are moms and dads. And husbands and wives, I want you to see this sad legacy of a backslidden parent. You know, it is impossible to overstate the influence of godly parents upon the faith of their children. It it cannot be overstated how much faithful godly parents faithfully living out their, their, their walk with Christ in front of their kids will influence their kids to be godly men and women. Now, let me be clear. Not every child of godly parents becomes a godly adult. We have to be honest about that. But here's what is true. Those adults, those adult children, when they grow up, they they may not follow in the path of their godly parents. They will never, ever in their lifetime forget the influence of those godly parents. 
They will never forget the prayers of that mama. They will never forget what they learned from God's word. They will never forget how they were modeled a faith life by their mom and dad. They will never forget it. And every time they go to bed at night and close their eyes, they will remember that I am not where I ought to be because I know better than this. But I will say this to you, that a carnal, fleshly, worldly, backslidden parent who claims faith in Christ and yet lives in such a way that they and their family are fully immersed in this world, it is impossible to overstate the damage that you are doing to your children's faith. Mom and Daddy, you hear me. If you want to destroy the faith of your children, you say one thing about what you believe and you live a way that looks something totally different and you will destroy the faith, or you will do great harm to the faith of those kids. By the grace of God, it may not be destroyed, but you will be doing your best to destroy it. We cannot overstate this, and, and we will leave a legacy as moms and dads, and it will be either the legacy of faithfulness that Abraham left, father of faith, or it will be the legacy, the sad legacy that Lot left. Very quickly, let me talk to you about Lot's sad legacy. Number one, Lot's legacy, the text tells us, was the legacy of a seared conscience. This is what the Bible means when it says in 2 Peter 2 that his, his soul was vexed. It was tormented. And he allowed more and more and more of Sodom to get into his family. He moved his family into Sodom and Sodom moved into his family. And so his conscience began to be tormented and vexed and seared because of his, his compromise. Number two, Lot left the legacy of distorted Morality, where, where his moral choices were upside down. Let me show you chapter 19 and verse number 8. It's, it's, it's an incredible thing. Verse number 7 says that when these men come, the men of Sodom, and they're banging on the house and saying, send out those two visitors that we might have homosexual sex with them. Verse 7, Lot says, I pray you, brothers, don't do this. It's wicked. Here's a better idea. Verse 8, I have two daughters who are virgins. Let me send them out to you. And you do with them as you please. I've read commentaries on this passage where commentators try to give a cultural context to this and sort of make it more morally reasonable in the cultural. Listen to me. There's no moral acceptance of this. Nowhere, any culture, any time. He's going to give his baby girls to a horde of oversexualized men because his morality is upside down. When you don't walk with God, the morality of this world begins to affect the way that you think. Number three, the third legacy that Lot left behind was the legacy of a lost testimony. Verse number 14, chapter 19, verse 14, he goes to his sons-in-law and he says to them, get out, God's bringing judgment, get out of here. And verse number 14, they laughed at him. He seemed like one that mocked. I, I can hear this conversation going like this. His sons-in-law here, Lot, who's been living in Sodom all this time, raising his girls in Sodom, living in this, immersed in this life. I'm not suggesting he was in the, in the homosexual lifestyle, but he was living in the middle and affirming and a part of all of this. And now he comes to talk to them about God and his righteousness and his judgment. And they're going, what do you know about God? Here's where some of us are. 
You may possess on the inside a genuine faith in Christ. You may possess true biblical values and an understanding of gospel truth, but when you try to share it, your life, your decisions, your values, your choices are so incongruent with the message you're speaking, people listen to you and go, what are you, what are you talking about? If you want your witness to be powerful, ask the Lord to give you grace, surrender to him so that your life might align with the proclamation that you need to make. Lot didn't do that, and therefore his witness was of no effect. Number four, his sad legacy was his lost family. He did lose his family. Verse number 26, he lost his wife. She longed for Sodom. She looked back and was turned into a pillar of salt. That doesn't mean a table salt. If you've been to the Dead Sea region, you know that there are salt formations that that line the Dead Sea. And so this was what she became. Ultimately, what it shows us is that she became what she longed for. She became what she knew and what she wanted. Pillar of salt. And then his two daughters. He lost his two daughters. And he lost their morality as seen in the end of the chapter. Look at chapter number 19 and verse number 31. The firstborn said, our father is old. There's not a man left in the earth to, to come in unto us after the, man, after the manner of all the earth. There's not a man left on the planet for us to, to sleep with and have a baby. They, they saw every city in the valley destroyed. That, to them, that was their world. They thought the whole world had been destroyed. They said, there's not another man. So here's what we're going to do. Verse 32, come let us make our father drink wine. We'll get him drunk and we'll have sex with him. And then that way we'll have sons, we'll have babies. Can you become any more morally decrepit than that? Any more morally and ethically bankrupt than that? And yet, it's what they had been immersed in their whole lives. It's what they had seen. So he lost his family. Lastly, he lost the generations. He didn't just lose his wife and his daughters. He lost his grandkids and beyond. Because the Bible tells us in this passage that These two girls do get their dad drunk and they do sleep with him and they do get pregnant and they do have sons. Verse number 36, thus were both daughters of Lot with child by their father. And the firstborn bare a son and called his name Moab, the same as the father of the Moabites in this day. And the younger, she also bare a son, called his name Ben-Ami, the same as the the father of the children of Ammon unto this day, Moab and Ben-Ami. These are the two, what do you call them, sons, grandsons, incestuous sons of Lot. And if you know anything about your Bible history in the Old Testament, you know that the Moabites and the Ammonites, the descendants of these two boys, become the perpetual enemies of God and enemies of the people of God. So he lost his conscience. He lost his witness He lost his morality, he lost his family, and he lost the generations because he was led down this path of a life not walking with God. So what's the lesson? Here stands imperfect but faithful Abraham, interceding, praying, standing before the Lord. And here here stands Lot, being dragged by the skin of his teeth out of the very city that God's going to destroy, losing everything. And my question to you as we close is who are you going to be? Who do you want to be? 
Are you going to be Abraham? Or are you going to be Lot? And the difference will be determined by your decision to trust in Jesus if you don't know him already, and if you do know him, to surrender to him fully and say, oh God, I need you. I want to live a life so my family will be blessed and my legacy will bring glory to you.